0: welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorne. On today's episode, you'll hear an interview with the historian and classicist Daisy Dunn. Daisy is the author of In the Shadow of Vesuvius, A New Life of Pliny. And she recently wrote a cover feature on Pompeii for our sister magazine, BBC History Revealed. The editor of BBC History Revealed, Charlotte Hodgman, spoke to her to find out more about the ancient volcanic eruption and the town that it destroyed.
1: So you've written um, a piece on Pompeii in in our our recent issue. Um, Perhaps you can just maybe recap um, for listeners, you know, what happened on on that fateful day? I mean, did did people in Pompeii have any idea that Vesuvius was, was about to kind of erupt?
2: I think really this, um, the eruption of Vesuvius came as a massive shock to everyone who was living in Pompeii, Herculaneum, sort of the other towns and villages of Campania. Um, it was early afternoon, um, one day in AD 79, um, and suddenly uh, this enormous cloud began to appear out of Mount Vesuvius um, in the distance, and that was really the first sign that people had that something uh, something strange was afoot and uh, we have the testimony of uh, a 17 year old boy who actually witnessed this and he was staying in the house of his um, uncle in the Bay of Naples with his mother as well and uh, his uncle was Admiral of the Fleet and he decided to go and have a closer look at uh, this strange cloud that had appeared. And he was just about to sort of board his ship when he received a message from someone who lived closer to the volcano. And she said to him that there's now no escape except by boat. So really quite rapidly, uh, the, the situation deteriorated and uh, Pliny the Elder, as uh, this, this man was called, um, decided to sort of launch a rescue mission and sail across the Bay of Naples with uh, his fleet of boats to try and rescue people. And... There was really no indication that uh, this was going to happen. I mean, for the previous few days, there'd been earth tremors. um, Mm. But earthquakes in this part of the world were really, really common. So people didn't really think there was anything uh, significant about those. And people didn't know that Vesuvius was a volcano. Um, at the time it hadn't erupted for 700 years. It had been dormant for 700 years. So people just thought it was a mountain and it was really richly covered in vineyards um, because this is a great sort of wine growing uh, region. So people had no idea. So it was a complete, they were completely taken unawares by it.
1: Mm. And you, you you mentioned just now that, um, that Pliny's friend said that there was no way out apart from by boat um so why why was that i mean did 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 it when the eruption started because this massive cloud came up didn't it and um and then kind of the uh, it kind of collapsed on itself um it was it was it that that kind of stopped people leaving uh was it or was it kind of they didn't have time to leave what what was kind of preventing people from going
2: well, there was a mixture um, of things, really. Um, the cloud was the first indication. So I think in that cloud stage, people would have had some warning and time to leave. Um, but soon this cloud began to rain pumice down heavily upon them. And this pumice was raining so heavily um, that it actually formed island-like masses on the water. So anyone who was trying to escape by boat found that they were actually sort of impeded uh, by the pumice itself. There was also the problem that... Uh, sort of the wind direction uh, was wrong uh, for quite a few people who were trying to get away. Um, So Pliny the Elder and his fleet actually found they wanted to try and reach uh, this friend who'd asked for their help, but they found that they couldn't get close enough because of this pumice that was floating all across the water. So they had to put in somewhere else instead. And they put in at a port town near Pompeii, which is called Stabii.
1: Okay. And and I found this quite remarkable that he actually then stays the night doesn't he and stays in um Stabii, um rather than kind of leaving um and actually that that was kind of to, to prove his downfall really wasn't it?
2: It was um poor old Pliny the Elder and um, he he sort of I mean initially really was just curious about this cloud um he was um, a natural historian as well as admiral of the fleet and he'd written this encyclopedia of natural history and was really clear to me that he obviously wanted to make some observations about uh, this cloud Um, but once it's turned into a rescue operation obviously that wasn't a priority anymore and so once he'd reached Stabii he he bumped into another friend of his and he really tried to put him at ease and tried to carry on as normal as much as possible so you sort of hear of him uh, having dinner with him and having a bath and then sort of spending the night at his villa but that night is actually crucial. Um, it's during that night that uh, the earth tremors that they felt for days actually intensify to such an extent that they realise that if they stay inside that villa they could well be trapped. Um, the whole villa could come down on top of them. So they decide to Escape while they can and the Elder has this ingenious idea of getting pillows strapping them to their heads and then venturing out uh, into the danger zone so the pillows hopefully sort of soften the blow of all this debris that's now falling uh, mm. from the cloud they've seen on the previous day and he came to uh, the, the coast and he was hoping really to try and find a way out um, but the wind was against them, the sea was very very wild uh, because of the circumstances and he just found himself of um unable to escape and he seems to have died by being asphyxiated by um, the volcanic cloud um, Mm. on the beach
1: i mean that's one of the interesting things is is the length of time um because i think when you imagine vesuvius erupting you think you know it erupts and then there's there's you know lava cascading through pompeii and you know and that that's what kills everybody but actually there was sort of a good 24 hour period wasn't it, when it was sort of building up to this big you know the, the sort of the lava and all that type of thing and actually a lot of people died through sort of suffocate like you say suffocation um mm. from the from the all those poisonous gases um do we i mean do we know how many people actually died or or, or you know did, did many people manage to escape
2: this is a really difficult question to answer partly because um a lot of this area still has yet to be excavated uh, so we don't know how many bodies human remains still remain uh, unfound. Um, what we do know we've, in, in Pompeii um, about a thousand uh, bodies have been found and sort of estimations of, of the, the population size of Pompeii at this time vary but some people sort of say between 10 to 15,000 lived here so that would suggest that the majority of people did escape um but it's very difficult to to sort of mm. say uh, exactly how many
1: and of course herculaneum which was the was a neighboring town which was actually closer to vesuvius wasn't it um and that's yeah. also quite a famous um uh, sort of town that has been that's you know, has been excavated um was that you know was that I suppose that was worse off than, I guess, than, than Pompeii. Why is it that Pompeii is kind of the the, the, the city that kind of resonates with people so much?
2: Um, it's difficult. I mean, I, I think Herculaneum is fascinating. I mean, out of sort of the two to visit, I find Herculaneum, you sort of get a truer sense almost of what it was like to live um, in a Roman town. Um, Herculaneum really bore the brunt of the eruption because I think it's about seven kilometres from... Pesuvia so incredibly close mm. and the people living there um the sort of fame stories in the 1980s they, they didn't think that many people had died there but suddenly in the 1980s they looked in uh these sort of boat stores they have had along sort of what used to be the shore and uh they found uh a lot of uh, skeletal remains of people who'd sort of tried to save themselves by piling inside these shelters for protection um and they found that a lot of those skeletons belonged to women and children um and a lot of the men would have given up their places and sort of died on the beach um instead i find herculaneum is absolutely sort of haunting a place to visit i think pompeii is almost overwhelmingly large Mm. um you sort of walk around and you're sort of seeing incredible things but i think herculaneum is just that little bit more manageable so i think it, it deserves to be on sort of every tourist map really mm. just as much as paid us
1: um you i mean you mentioned that you kind of get a, a real sense of of roman life um in from Herculaneum. what what in particular kind of you know strikes you or, or has been found there that that kind of gives you that impression
2: i think the grandeur of it is really surprising even though it's a smaller place so the sort of population size we think is more like four to 5,000 compared to sort of ten to 15,000 of Pompeii. Um, but the villas which have been excavated there are something else. Um, there's one in particular, uh, the Villa of the Papyrus, or Papyri, um, which actually contains uh, the largest collection of Greek and Roman sculptures uh, ever found in one building, as well as uh, the oldest surviving library from the Greco-Roman world. And... Um, and it just, it's enormous and it goes on and on and on and on and, on. and you just find uh, it's full of these incredible uh, works of art, uh, mosaics, sculptures. And it's not alone. I mean, there were sort of several others. Um, I think it was a real sort of uh, attraction for sort of the wealthy people to have these great maritime homes with wonderful views uh, looking out to sea. Uh, so you get a real sort of sense of uh, this kind of luxury that existed there uh, mm. before this terrible disaster.
1: And you, going back to, to Pliny the the Elder, um, who, kind of who was was he quite well known? Um, he must have been quite. If he was admiral of the fleet, he must have been quite well known um, across the region.
2: Yes, I mean he was sort of. Um, Amazingly versatile as a man. so he's born sort of around a d twenty three twenty four, and he grew up as uh, sort of followers sort of military routines. so he served as a soldier and had sort of several campaigns in Germany um and then became a historian and sort of documented uh, sort of the German wars, um lots of his own sort of experiences uh, there. And then sort of became sort of most famous for this encyclopedia of natural history, which really encompassed sort of everything that was known at the time, or at least everything that they thought they knew. And a lot of the time he was wrong. And sort of, you can read the encyclopedia today and think, how could he possibly think that about women or whatever, or childbirth or whatever Mm -hmm. else? Um, But it was sort of he, he was a great figure for sort of wanting to preserve everything uh, that had been found. I think he was very conscious of the fact that human memory only lasts so long and he kind of saw it his duty to record as much as he possibly could, whether that was history, natural history, um, as well as sort of having this great military career um, mm. and sort of serving uh, he served the emperors um, as well. Uh, he was in the sort of imperial administration uh, before he became admiral of the fleet in his later years.
1: And you can see why then he would have been interested in going to, to investigate the 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 big cloud that he saw, um, his nephew um, also Pliny, um, he sensibly uh, stayed, didn't he, um, to to continue studying, um, while he his did. uncle, and it was a very sensible uh, plan in in the long run. Um, what he he inherits, doesn't he? He inherits um, his uncle's uh, library and all his documents and things like that. What does he go on to do? Does he follow a similar sort of path to to, to Pliny the Elder? Um,
2: he, I think he really very very much sort of wants to take uh, his life in his own direction. He's very conscious of the fact that he's living in the shadow of this great figure, his mm-hmm. uncle. And he takes, he inherits his name effectively. He's actually sort of adopted posthumously by his uncle. So that's why he's known as uh, Pliny the younger, um, even though that's his maternal uncle, um, and he tries to carve out his own career. Really, he immediately joins um, a law court in Rome as uh, a civil court and sort of specialises in wills and inheritance. Uh, and he becomes a senator as well, and he establishes himself really for sort of taking on uh, sort of a series of of legal cases. Um, also, the fact that he's living in very difficult times. Um, I think we all sort of think of Nero as being sort of the the real uh, terrible sort of emperor at the time, mm. but Pliny the Younger sort of finds sort of the new Nero in Domitian, um, and Domitian uh, was uh, the emperor that he had to serve uh, sort of for considerable time uh, in the Senate of. And it was just a very, very difficult time. I mean, he Domitian put to death um, a series of Stoic philosophers for example who, who Pliny counted as friends and Pliny kind of implicated in this um, because of his position uh, in the Senate and the astonishing thing really that, that makes Pliny the Younger special is he actually wrote um, a lot of letters and these have been preserved um, so these letters of document uh, Rome uh, in this period. So he talks about everything from the eruption uh, right the way up to the ascent of Emperor Trajan, who was a, sort of a considerably better emperor, who Pliny the Younger also served.
0: Mm.
1: And so what do we find out from his letters? I mean, that's, that's our own, one of them is, it, some of them are our only source, aren't they, for what happened when Vesuvius erupted
2: Yes, exactly. So, there's there's two on the eruption of Vesuvius, and they're the only eyewitness accounts we have of the eruption. Um, and he takes us from his viewpoint. He stayed behind with his mother at a port town called Mycenum, uh, which is where they they originally were when they saw this cloud. So, it's about 30 kilometres from the volcano. Um, so, he describes his own experience, uh, how he managed to escape and survive, um, and then what happened to his uncle as well, which he Sort of would have heard reports from other people. Um, and he wrote those two letters to the historian Tacitus and Tacitus is sort of the great historian of the age. He went on to write uh, the great annals uh, of Rome all about the Roman emperors and he was about five or six years older than Pliny. So they, there's a sort of series of letters between them which are very interesting uh, sort of document uh, sort of the ins and outs of, of Rome and the age. Um, other sort of highlights there are. and um, The first sort of pagan source on Christianity because uh, Pliny the Younger was actually dispatched by Trajan to a Roman province in the east in what is now Turkey in his later years and it was kind of an administrative role um, but Pliny the Younger uh, encountered Christians there for the first time and he was completely bewildered he had never really come across them sort of face to face and he was quite sort of taken aback and didn't know what to do and he actually took it upon himself to to uh, question and in some cases torture um, and put to death the, the Christians that he encountered so it's a very, very dark side oh. of you know, which comes as I think a real shock it comes to sort of at the end of the ten books of his letters you come across this letter and you think gosh this is such a different viewpoint from you sort of built <laughs> up a picture of who Pliny Younger was and then you come across that and you have to sort of change uh, how you feel about him rather yeah
1: Yeah. Um, And what does he sort of, does he shed any light on sort of day to day life, the kind of, you know, the the mundane things of it, or or does he kind of more concerned with, you know, politics and, and things like that that are going on in the empire?
2: It's a real mixture, I think that's why the letters are so interesting. So one minute you can be reading about uh, sort of the nitty-gritty, of the politics, and next he's sort of waxing lyrical about his fruit trees. Um, he, <laughs> one of the things that Benedykt actually collected, as it were, sort of villas across Italy. He's almost like a property developer in his own time. He had sort of villas around Lake Como, which is uh, where he was born. Uh, one in sort of modern Perugia, one on the west coast of Italy, one in Rome, and um, some of these villas had spectacular gardens and. He was really keen uh, on sort of growing sort of fantastic topiary. Some of it was shaped as his name. He had sort of Plinius written in topiary in one of them in his garden. Um, and he used to sort of make his own wine as well, or at least he had sort of slaves making his wine for <laughs> him. He used to go in and sort of taste the must and sort of feel like he'd actually contributed something to this process, by <laughs> just by doing that. So you kind of get sort of mixed uh, picture. And stuff. I think he's concerned with so sort of how do you live a life? sort of richly and fully I mean he was very keen on trying to establish a legacy for himself through his political work um at the same time he considered it important to sort of take daily exercise and sort of go for a long walk every day a long ride and then he sort of had this sort of very quite fixed routine to try and get the most out of life so that he was enjoying himself at the same time he was sort of establishing this legacy that he really sought
0: still to come on the history extra podcast That's that's what
2: makes it so haunting, I think, and so so exciting. That's the real sort of enigma of, of Pompeii and Herculaneum and sort of all of this part of the world. Just the fact that there is so much that you can see that was there, but knowing that there's still so much that remains hidden. It's just, it's like alive. It's still alive, even though it's dead. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all.
1: Um, and so he he lived. Um, is it sorry? Was it my scene? My you said he lived in. So he he
2: lived most of the time in Rome. Um, my scene was where he was staying when he was uh, when he saw the eruption.
1: And he does actually return to Pompeii, doesn't he? Um, later in his life. Um, yes. Tell us a little bit about that because it, what struck me from your the, the writing was is how the area had kind of revived.
2: This is the real surprise. I mean, he, he says. Um, Probably about 20, 30 years later, um, he goes to stay with a friend in sort of the area. We're not sure if it's exactly Pompeii. or if It's nearby, so it's in that neck of the wood. Um, and I think as a historian, you, you look at the letters and you think, OK, he's going to say something about how worried he is about going back to this region where his mm. uncle died nothing you don't find anything like that um he doesn't express any concern about revisiting the place in another letter he tells us that he his wife um, had been unwell and she actually decided to go to that region as well and he was all for it because even though the eruption was of 20 maybe maximum 30 years uh previously uh this Area has kind of regained its reputation as one of of having immense health benefits and being very, very fertile and very good for sort of recuperating from a lengthy illness, and that's sort of astonishing. I think you sort of you imagine sort of Pompeii and Herculaneum being absolutely sort of obliterated Mm. um, by this disaster, and I think it sort of takes we now know at least twenty years for vegetation to return uh, to this sort of hitherto very, very green area. but sort of as soon as it does people are um going back there um and obviously sort of revitalizing uh everything that, that sort of it, that it was and sort of rethinking of it, thinking of it again as an area which was incredibly healthy um and sort of bountiful.
1: Did mm. was there any did anyone try and rebuild in either of the two towns so in Herculaneum or or Pompeii did anyone come back to to actually live there?
2: Not directly on um, the areas that were sort of uh, the heart of the cities before, but I mean, one of the poets, there's a poet called Statius, who sort of says he's actually from Naples, um, and then he said he's sort of amazed that he thinks people already sort of forget um, what uh, what had happened, like with the disaster, because people are starting to build, I guess slightly further out but they're still sort of coming to the same area and he Mm. thinks as soon as it's going to look completely green people are not going to remember this tragedy at all
1: and that's just incredible because like you say you know today when you visit you know you see you see the ruins and it's all kind of quite quite you imagine it being quite barren don't you and and sort of no one ever coming back um Mm. so to think of people kind of going back to that area so soon after it happened um, yes Yeah, I think it's
2: just because, I mean, Campania itself, we're not talking about the actual sort of epicentres of the the ancient cities, we're talking about sort of the the broader area, Mm. which was still sort of affected by um, the volcanic eruption. It was just, see, it was amazingly fertile, and that was partly to do with uh, the the volcano itself. I mean, I think one of the ancient historians actually talks about the fact that Mount Etna um, in Sicily. Is very, very fertile at the soil and is very, very good at sort of um, growing vines and things um, because of the sort of the volcanic nature uh, yeah. of the soil. And I think the same is clearly true of um, Vesuvius, um, one of my sort of favourite ancient wall painting shows Vesuvius as it looked before it erupted and it has the wine god Bacchus standing in front of it and Vesuvius is nothing like sort of how you imagine it to look at it's completely verdant and green and covered in all these wonderful um, grapevines that are still growing up the lower slopes Mm. and I think there's a temptation to sort of you know um, embrace um, Campania again as as a sort of very very healthy region was just too much.
1: What do we know? Where I mean, only a few thousand people people have been found, haven't they? Or few of the, um, have been found, or their remains have been found in Pompeii, but had a quite large population. Do you what happened to the the sort of refugees who had to flee the city? Did they were they sort of catered for? Were they did the, did the Roman government step in and, and help them?
2: Uh, we know that um, so. The emperor at the time of the eruption was Emperor Titus. Um, And he'd only been emperor for a few months, really, when when this eruption happened. But he immediately got to work to try and help um, those affected by the disaster. So he actually hastened to the Bay of Naples and he set up a sort of panel of senators who'd be put in charge of sort of restoring um, what was possible to be restored and sort of raising funds to aid the relief effort. And uh, the point is that that he was sort of adamant that the the the, the privy purse would not benefit from the disaster uh, whatsoever, and you have to sort of appreciate I mean how much he had on his hands because we think of this sort of affecting um the Bay of Naples, which it did. but we also know that volcanic dust was actually carried as far as Egypt and Syria as well. so and sort of Rome was affected by it at all. They thought sort of it all went very, very dark during the eruption. So, and this this dust over time actually was said to have um, spread sickness and pestilence um, among the survivors. So the emperor really had a huge project on his hands, really, to try and uh, restore and and salvage and really help the survivors as much as he could.
1: Mm, yeah, um, and presumably Pliny's uh, Pliny the Younger's mother uh, got out. She went with her son.
2: Yes, she she seems to have survived, and then we never hear of her again in any of the oh. youngest letters. So, but yeah, she she definitely survived. Okay.
1: Um, and then it isn't really until the nineteenth century, is it, that um, that Pompeii's really kind of is rediscovered. Um, how how did how how was the, the sort of city found again? Um, it was a sort of
2: a series of processes. So. Um, As early as the late 16th century, we hear of an Italian architect who actually stumbles upon the ruins of Pompeii while he's actually just digging a canal. Um, But it's only about 150 years later um, that they start to excavate the city. And it's Herculaneum which actually was excavated first um and this is in the mid 18th century um and there's a spanish military engineer who's sort of put in charge of of these excavations and they're a bit haphazard um to be honest sort of in in both places there's a bit of sort of prioritizing of actually rescuing these fantastic wall paintings and treasures and mm. things which are found rather than actually trying to shore up uh, the remains mm. so um but in terms of the actual human remains, uh, that's when you're sort of looking at the 19th century. Um, there's an Italian archaeologist um, he also specialized in coins, and he discovers a method for actually pouring plaster into the cavities left by the bodies um, discovered at Pompeii so that you can actually make um, these very sort of visceral casts um, of the dead. And he uses this technique. And we, if you've sort of visited Pompeii, you'll see um, a lot of these casts, which we sort
1: of bring you I think as close as you possibly can uh, mm. to the dead. And they're incredibly detailed I mean you know down to facial expressions and things like that mm. aren't they? They are it's
2: really haunting to look at them I think sometimes you have to remind yourself that you're not just looking at a sculpture mm. or sort of you know a sort of a modern rendering you're actually looking at uh, you know what remains of, of, of a dead person it's, it's very sort of so censorship, shiver Daniel's fine what
1: I mean what amazes me actually when you look at a map of Pompeii' is how much there still is to 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 excavate um there's a, there's a huge chunk I mean, you say it was a, it was a very large city, but you know, there's big chunks of the city that we haven't haven't even looked at yet
2: exactly I mean it's I think there'll be so many people thinking gosh can't you just dig up the rest and want to see I mean what else lies um, hidden what else haven't we discovered but there has to be sort of quite a lot of um, work on sort of actually preserving what has been um, mm. exposed to light already, and that's kind of where the priority has lain uh, over the sort of the last decades or so. Um, having said that, sort of most recently, I've been really, really excited to read about uh, a lot of the discoveries which have been made. They've been excavating a region called Region Five um, in the north of the city, and this area had not been excavated until now, and it's part of this sort of 105 million euro uh, great. Pompeii project it's called and they've uncovered astonishing um mosaics and wall paintings um which tell us a lot more uh, about the city and sort of about people's sort of you know interest in the myths for example um and they've sort of uncovered things like uh, a fantastic they used to have these fast food bars and that's sort of <laughs> how they've been described um they were sort of The rich tended to sort of eat at home in Pompeii, but for sort of the poorer people in particular, there were these sort of um, bars which served hot food. um, And they've discovered one of these, and they're sort of beautifully painted. You wouldn't have necessarily thought that, I think.
1: No, and um, the the bakeries always fascinate me as well. um, With the bit, the big, the bread ovens, and you can sort of, you can almost kind of imagine, can't you, what it would have been like to have lived in such a bustling Roman city? Um, You can.
2: And seeing those are very round loaves, sort of perfectly scored yeah. into
1: segments so you can sort of tear and share them. <laughs> yeah. Was it a typical sort of Roman city of 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 its day?
2: I'd say it's more typical than Rome is. Um, I mean, it's considerably smaller. It's about 160 acres, I think, um, and sort of bearing in mind Rome's population is more like a million. Um, compared mm. to sort of ten to fifteen thousand, so I think it's probably more typical uh, of of Roman towns um, at this time. Obviously, not quite as sort of extravagant. You don't find um, exactly the same sort of uh, public monuments as you would in Rome, but it's still a very, very accomplished place. I mean, there's fantastic sort of. It's a great amphitheatre, there theatres, there's sort of um, beautiful forum and baths and all kinds of uh, amenities that you know. A well-functioning city should have and the roads I mean that's one thing when you sort of visit Pompeii and you see all the roads and I think it's fascinating you see the sort of tracks left by the carts um sort of still in the roads themselves and think it's sort of amazing when you see little features like that mm. to remind you that it was very much a sort of bustling uh, you know busy yeah, place.
1: definitely and as uh, several months ago um they a a plaque or something was found wasn't there that that actually sheds light on the date of the eruption um putting it probably more likely to be have been in October um 79 AD what's your kind of thoughts on that
2: well this has been sort of the one question we have these sort of two letters that Pliny wrote about the eruption but the one of most contentious issue to have come out of this is when exactly did Vesuvius erupt because most of the manuscripts of his letters seem to say it happened on the 24th of August Mm. Um, and but then when people look at the actual archaeological evidence it seems very, very strange because they have sort of evidence of, of, of uh, autumn fruits, for example, which have been harvested, lots of pomegranates, um, and the wine seems to have all been harvested and bottled and put away. And that just would not happen in August. Um, so, for a long time, people have suspected it's more like October or even November. And... Um, and as part of these latest uh, series of excavations, they found a, an inscription in Pompeii. And this inscription refers to a date in October. And the tantalising thing about it is that inscription is written in charcoal, and charcoal does not survive for very long. So the uh, sort of a, a reasonable assumption would be that that inscription belonged to the year in which Vesuvius erupted, so AD 79, and sort of shows that it could not have happened in August but it still remains I mean, that inscription doesn't tell us exactly when it did erupt it's not conclusive evidence I mean this is still the sort of thing we keep coming across things which seem to give us more of an indication that it is and a sort of a deeper into autumn uh, mm. date but we can't seem to put our finger on exactly when that happened but one thing I mean I'd say is that uh, the Romans had a slightly different calendar from us. And in the Roman calendar that Pliny the Elder uh, describes in his encyclopedia, uh, late August is actually autumn in the okay. Roman calendar. So whichever way you look at it, I think from my perspective, it's clearly it's an autumn event, whether it's yeah. August or whether it's October.
1: I mean, it seems strange that... that something so significant, you know, that that the date could have been lost? Um, Was it not recorded somewhere in Rome or, you know, a government, you know, you'd have thought somebody would have, (laughs) it seems quite a simple thing to have kind of recorded
2: it's possible that another document will come to light yeah there'll be you know we'll we'll get sort of confirmation once and for all I mean I think the difficulty I don't think that Pliny probably wrote the date wrong I don't think having been caught up in that disaster it's likely he'd forgotten which month (laughs) it happened um I think you know with with his letters which put it in August I think probably there was a scribal error you've got to think people have been copying these letters and then there's been copies of copies and then Mm. sort of any kind of error is then perpetuated and passed on uh, down the generations and uh, this is very very common uh, when you have sort of a range of of, um, manuscripts and you often get sort of the wrong the wrong detail which is then perpetuated.
1: It remains a really fascinating topic and you know you you just kind of know that there's going to be other things you know big things to, to be found and um
2: yeah, it That's, like it's that's a,
1: what makes it so haunting, I think, yeah. and so, so
2: exciting. That's the real sort of enigma of, of Pompeii and Herculaneum and sort of all of this part of the world, just the fact that there is so much that you yeah. can see that was there, but knowing that there's still so much that remains
0: hidden, it's just, it's like alive. It's still alive, even though it's dead. That was Daisy Dunn. Daisy's book, In the Shadow of Vesuvius, A Life of Pliny, is available now, published by William Collins. You can read her feature on Pompeii in the latest issue of BBC History Revealed magazine, which is on sale now. Daisy will also be speaking about Pliny the Elder at our History Weekend in Chester this October. You can find out more at historyextra.com forward slash events. Thanks for listening. Today's podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. We'll be back on Thursday when Henry Hemming will be discussing MI6's secret campaign to bring America into the Second World War.